Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. I can't stress the value of having a strong team and not to make me think about venture capitalists. A lot of them are investing just in the people more than the idea, and I think that's absolutely true in these settings where it's hard, I mean, where business is tough. You know, I mean, starting up an organization, you know, no matter what your purpose and, and executing on it really relies on the strength of the people that you have. There's a kind of an imperative to be capturing what we're doing well. So building these systems that I mentioned, capturing what we're doing and sharing it, sort of disseminating it and influencing the sector. Because frankly, if we're just a chain of 10 or 20 hospitals, that's a drop in the bucket. And I think that's true for a lot of people trying to deal with, you know, whether you're building schools or hospitals, your ability to directly influence the population is just, you know, we would delivering 20 or 30,000 babies is, is a tiny percentage of the total market. So the only way that we're really going to budge the needle I'm very pleased today to have an opportunity to speak to Nick Pearson, founder and executive director of Jacaranda Health. Jacaranda Health provides affordable, high-quality maternal and child health care services to poor women in Kenya. Jacaranda aims to build a fully sustainable and scalable chain of maternity care clinics using the latest technology, business and clinical innovations and use this experience to help change the way maternity services are provided for the more than one million poor women giving birth each year in urban East Africa. Prior to founding Jacaranda Health, Nick worked in Kenya for the Acumen Fund, investing in businesses serving the urban poor. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today and to talk on Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs podcast. Can you tell me a little bit about Jacaranda Health and how you came to set it up? Sure, Virgil. Um, so, you know, I've, I've always um, worked at the intersection of business and and social causes. Um, my, my dad was in the foreign service. So as we grew up, we were living in different countries. Um, and it's always been, it's always been sort of an expectation and, uh, of mine that I'd be working overseas. And, and after I went to business school in the U S, um, I'd been working for a couple of different organizations that were doing some interesting work at the, um, you know, at the interface between global health and and uh, and sort of business and finance, and so we were looking at uh, supply chains for for clean water supplies in Vietnam and India, and I ended up um, I ended up in Nairobi uh, working for an organization called the Acumen Fund, uh, which is now called Acumen, <clears throat> and they do a really interesting, great organization that does social venture capital investment. So they actually act like venture capitalists. And they, they place uh, investments in private companies that are serving low-income populations. And they're all, I mean, they're working in Pakistan and India and West Africa, but they also have this East Africa hub. And um, I was there looking for investments for them. Uh, while I was there, a couple of things happened that, that uh, became the genesis of Jacaranda. One, one, was, uh, one, was that I, <laughs> one was that I met my wife, who... Uh, who's an obstetrician uh, from here in San Francisco, and she uh, was working in, in uh, Western Kenya and had been working with women there. And her, um, her stories of the, the work she was doing with, uh, with, with women and the challenges that they had had kind of accessing decent quality maternity care um, was very compelling to me. Um, you know, you, you end up getting 
there's a lot of kind of issues and, and, and causes to get behind and all of them are good, but ultimately you end up sort of landing on one that, uh, that resonates with you particularly. Um, and, uh, and in this case, in this case, um, you know, but, Decent quality maternity care became something that was was, was something uh, that I was passionate about. Um, at the same time, you know, on the on the kind of business and opportunity side, we were seeing at Acumen as we were we were investigating the market. There was a huge need for a better quality care um, for a low income population. So you know, the, the quality of of healthcare in general and and particularly maternity care was really poor. Um, women. You know, either didn't have access to care, or they went to care in a, a public hospital, or some of these in the private sector. You know, there was a private sector that was catering to the very rich, um, and and sort of a lot of quack, quackery for the very poor. Uh, and so, you know, there's a, a, a large gap in the market for, for sort of better quality, more systematic care. Um, so, you know, the, the, I ended up making a leap from the kind of venture side over to launching this uh, this organization. Um, you know, partly inspired by the gap and partly inspired by, um, by, uh, by my wife and, and the work she was doing. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the challenges, um, uh, structural challenges and other, in, in the provision of maternity care in Kenya? You know, what you described about the sort of disparities between Europe and Kenya, I think, is, is a stark example. And I, the, you know, it reflects a system that's, um, that's not operating very effectively. And, and how that manifests itself is that, you know, a woman goes into a maternity hospital and, you know, it's overcrowded, the quality of care is not respectful, uh, and, and the level of training and competency of the providers is highly varied as well. So as a result, you get uh, not treated particularly well, the outcomes and the sort of diagnoses aren't as solid, and, you know, the basic supplies and, and, and equipment is there. And... Um, and 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 the outcomes are poor, honestly. So 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 um, that's where you know that's where we see an opportunity to kind of um, to, to 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 improve the model. Um, we're we're looking essentially at trying to create a set of systems uh, within a network of our own facilities that can provide higher quality and more affordable care. And be it sort of a demonstration for sort of better opportunities and ways of de- delivering care uh, in these low resource settings. I suppose when you were thinking about uh, the level of care that you were going to be able to offer, how did you think about that? And also, to what degree were you thinking about whether or not you would be a non profit or a for profit or um, some kind of hybrid? Use of 
human resources, and so allocating tasks to people who can do it but are um, sort of what's called in the health landscape task shifting, so getting kind of lower-cost health workers to take on chunks of work, um, allocating the tasks among them and creating teams that can provide low-cost care, really smart logistics, uh, the use of technology and mobile phones, which are prevalent in these environments. So, you know, we communicate with our patients via SMS. We have a kind of, we've built a strong back end where uh, we can kind of track patients that are, our community mobilizers are out there uh, logging in patients with mobile phones, registering them in the system, and then our guys at headquarters can call them up and, and do a sort of a sales pitch, and then we can follow up with the patients as they go through our system. So, you know, the use of technology, the use of protocols, a lot of sense. When you uh, had this idea, how did you test the feasibility? Because uh, many people listening to this will, will uh, you know, have an idea or think there's an opportunity and so forth. How did you go about testing the hypothesis, the idea that you, you know, there was something that could be done? Yeah, I mean, this gets, this gets down to, I mean, this is the fundamental challenge that any entrepreneur has, whether you're a non-profit or for-profit. You're, you're, you're creating, you're trying to create something out of nothing. And, uh, and the, the, you know, it's, it's about bootstrapping. And, and what, you know, in, in, in our case, what that consisted of was, um, was three things. Um, was, um, you know, trying to demonstrate some real results as quickly as possible. And in our case, we, you know, I, I just out of pocket funded a couple of, um, a team of, of guys here in, in Kenya, very, um, sort of very cheaply to do a bunch of focus groups with, with some of the women that we serve. So try and get as much feedback as quickly as possible from um, the, um, from the women that we were going to 
to serve. Um, you know, we, we had identified what seemed like a need, but really wanted to make sure that it was there. And so um, as, those, as those focus groups came in and, and you know, we, we saw kind of people's, people's real experiences and the needs and the gaps that they described, um, you know, it became clearer that there was a... Um, that there was, you know, there was a gap in the market. The question of whether or not there was something that you could build a business model off, off of takes, again, a sort of another kind of, of, of testing and piloting. And in our case, we started out, right now we run small maternity hospitals, but we started out with a mobile clinic, for example. So we were just providing prenatal and postnatal care and family planning. Um, it was, you know, kind of easier to set up, required less investment and enabled us to build relationships with clients and understand our client base better, but also to start demonstrating that there was real demand there. So you're constantly in the sort of early days, constantly trying to trade off, you know, find as many real results as fast as you can, as cheaply as you can, and then build a community of, of funders and supporters around you. That's interesting. This idea, I suppose, also testing ideas or learning as much as you can in a short period at the beginning. Is there a discipline in testing, as it were, just seeing things as an opportunity to get more information and to further understand the problem, indeed? Yeah, and, you know, there are kind of increasingly kind of theoretical frameworks around this stuff. I can't say that we necessarily follow those as cookbooks, but, you know, here in, in Silicon Valley, for example, the, the, the notion of the lean startup is very popular and hot right now. So, you know, it's this idea, again, of, of iterating quickly, you know, starting with beta products and testing, you know, whether, whether this is a sort of mobile game or a piece of software or, or a social enterprise in Kenya, it's getting, um, sort of iterating as quickly as you can you know, getting feedback from customers as quickly as you can. I mean, it seems intuitive, but that's not the way a lot of businesses are started. Uh, I think it's really effective, though, uh, in this landscape. You see, again, um, organizations in the design industry like IDEO um, promoting these ideas of human-centered design, which have you know similar, similar kinds of frameworks around them. I mentioned that book to you yesterday, the Social Entrepreneur's Playbook. Well, Ian McMillan, he wrote a book in, I think, in 1995 called Discovery Driven Growth, which is in the Harvard Business Review, and that fundamentally is the basis of the lean startup. <laughs> you mentioned the importance of building a support team, or you talked about that. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? How did you do that, and how important has that been helping you as you've grown? Yeah, I mean, I can't stress the value of having a strong team enough. I mean, you think about venture capitalists, a lot of them are investing just in the people more than the idea. And I think that's absolutely true in these settings where, um, where it's hard, I mean, where business is tough. You know, I mean, starting up a, a, a um, an organization, you know, no matter what your purpose and, and executing on it really relies on the strength of the people that you have and the team that you have. And so um, we've been very... Yeah, I guess deliberate and opportunistic about that, but it's constantly, you know, it's it's sort of one of the things that you have to spend the most time thinking about, and you know, part of it is is trying to, to inspire people and kind of bring really talented people in. But then there's a lot of just, you know, the same sorts of things that a sports team would go through. It's it's thinking about uh, what kinds of people you need in various roles and how to kind of trade up and develop. Um, um, I think we've managed to pull together a really phenomenal team of, we've grown to a, a team of 60 people in Kenya and, and it's still small, but it's growing fast and, and, uh, we have some really talented, um, 
talented managers and executives, um, and and it's it's um, an interesting mix of people. Some you know some guys who are coming from the states with strong strong experience in consulting, and and also some really talented uh, and experienced Kenyan managers as well. And so getting a kind of a team that's I think in this in this landscape increasingly with diaspora communities, you, you have an opportunity to to create a strong kind of cosmopolitan. Um, that builds on each other's strengths and uh, the diversity there. So we have you know, we have our clinical operations director as a Kenyan who trained as a nurse in the U.S. and she was running hospitals in the U.S. and decided she wanted to kind of contribute to her country and she moved her family back and joined us to run our, our, our clinical division. Um, really phenomenal uh, faith Muay guy. Uh, and so it's, I don't know, that's, that I think is the most sort of inspiring, exciting piece of this, this kind of work is, is getting... So that's quite a big group. Uh, it says growing fast. What would you advise, say, to to you know somebody starting out that might not have necessarily strong connections uh, in a particular area? How to go about you know building support, getting getting feedback, and so forth? Yeah, you know, it's I think it's a mix of this is this sort of gets back to the bootstrapping idea because you are. It's it's hard when you start and you don't really have anything to show for yourself. Um, so you know, four, forty years ago, it was just you know, Decorando was just an idea, and um, you know, and you're faced with this issue of like, okay, well, I know, I know, if I just had money and I just had people behind me, we could we could we could do this easily. <laughs> and, uh, but you, you don't, but you don't have either to, to, to begin with, and so it's this kind of balancing act. Um, between kind of demonstrating real proof as quickly as possible, and that might be with you know with field surveys, it might be with sort of some initial client customer interactions that start to demonstrate your point, and then very quickly trying to trade that and leverage um, um, getting resources. And and when I think about um, you know the process that we that we went through, it's kind of a mix of being able to create a strong message around kind of connecting the dots between where you are now and where you need to be, and then um, building social proof. Because in the early days, I mean, so you know, it's maybe getting one funder to support you, and then um, and and bringing in advisors um, whose name adds credibility to your work, and it's bringing in you know your first team, which is probably not going to be your strongest team um, because it's hard to sell really talented people on something that barely exists. So it's a constant kind of tr- you're sort of trading up and 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 evolving as quickly as you can uh, with the recognition that that um, uh, that you have you have limited resources. I don't know if that's very clear, but. Um, well, no, it's, I, I see, as you say, it's, it's kind of an iterative thing. You've just got to keep pushing, but there are those things that you can do to, you know, to, to validate, I suppose, what you're doing as much as possible and as quickly as possible, I suppose. Um, and I suppose, like any entrepreneur, the drive to continue, that's always important. I mean, for you, what have been the most difficult days? Have there been days where you questioned whether or not you know, this was, would, would, would be viable. Um, can you give me an example or, or, or two of, of, of moments where, which were particularly challenging? So I think the, the, the toughest days are when you, uh, when, when you encounter the, the, the kinds of challenges that, that, that um, in the healthcare landscape, for example, it's, you know, when you have a client complication or, you know, the, 
nurses give the wrong diagnosis or um, you know there's criticism from from clients and and that's going to happen inevitably um, when you lose a funder or you lose a team member um, or run into a problem with the government those kinds of things happen all the time I mean it's it's um, it's sort of an it's, it's sort of a and, and you know, and they're interspersed with the highs of, of of bringing great people onto the team and, and getting great feedback from from your clients. Can you talk a little bit about funding and uh, your experience of, of funding uh, Jacaranda Health uh, and getting to where you are today? So funding is is one of those big, along with along with bringing bringing in a team. Um, sort of toughest thing to do at the very beginning when you don't really have anything to show for yourself. And so really what you need is is, is someone to anchor you. Um, and usually that's not much, you know, so so you have to, um, you know, there are, there are I think, you know, as, as far as concrete suggestions, there are a couple of great funders out there that provide early stage support to social entrepreneurs. So um, Echoing Green, the Malago Foundation, uh, the Puri Foundation, a few of these guys are out there looking for really great ideas. There's business plan competitions as well. Um, and, and we'll provide seed support for organizations that uh, that are really just getting started off. And But um, at the same time, you know, you've got to make as much progress as you can with as little as you can. And the reality for most of us is that, you know, you, you manage to convince someone to give you a $10,000 grant or a $15,000 grant and do as much as you can with a couple of interns and a few clients and a few clients and then sort of leverage that into something bigger. Um, but I, you know, what I've seen the most, some of the more successful social entrepreneurs now, there's a little bit more of an ecosystem and a pipeline for funding, starting with some of these seed funders. Um, you know, for us, it was a mix of we were we were lucky enough to be involved with some of these guys like the Milago and Puri Foundations and the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation um, that support social entrepreneurs through these early days, but also you know some some visionary family foundations that were just excited about the about the cause and the opportunity as well. Um, you start out with small amounts of money and then you move into to, to bigger ones. There's a similar ecosystem that's being built on the for-profit side as well. And uh, so, I, as I mentioned, I worked with the Acumen Fund, um, and you know, my point of departure was actually more originally more, um, hey, let's build this thing as a for-profit, and then sort of got convinced the other way. Um, but um, I see, I see some great for-profit entrepreneurs in this space um, going through a more sort of a, a similar trajectory on you know, starting with angel funding. You know, they're increasingly, I think that's the toughest stage, but they're increasingly some guys who are willing to put convertible debt and, and early stage seed seed investments and sometimes even grants into startup for-profit entrepreneurs. And then increasingly as well, there's there are these guys who are coming in at the kind of Series A stage uh, with venture-type uh, investments, you know, with a kind of social flavor to them, looking for good deals in this space. Seed stage is always the toughest, but but I feel like the the sort of financing ecosystem is definitely evolving quickly. That's oh, excellent. It's excellent. You, you mentioned also the the when things are good and there's great energy and great positive feeling. To what extent is that something that is really special about a, a social business, uh, social enterprise? The sense that there, there's this deeper meaning, there's something more than money. Is that something that helps uh, a team when things are difficult? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, on the one hand, um, 
on the one hand, that's absolutely true. You know, um, I think it is. You know, when you have when you have a sort of a mission or you have a something that inspires and, and sort of drives a lot of people to join the team, um, that's that's a kind of a capital. That's kind of capital. I mean, in other words, that's something that you can kind of trade off in terms of it's like a benefit and a perk, um, and it does kind of keep your keep people motivated. But it's not something, you know, having done this for a couple of years, it's not something you can bank on. And I think the nonprofit sector sometimes um, tries to bank too much on it, you know, at the expense of other things like compensation. <laughs> and uh, and the reality is that, you know, I mean, there's plenty of guys working for Google and and, uh, and um, for-profit companies that are equally inspired by the mission. Um, and and uh, you know in our in our sector you know it's great it's, it's it's something that you can you can offer to people and it helps bring people uh, into the into the team but um, but you also have to be really smart on the human resources side about um, about compensation about flexibility about and some of the trade offs that that you can't provide as a for profit uh, organization or you know equity and stock options and things like that but in return. Um, some of the things that you've got going for you are, um, or the things that we in this sector end up um, end up doing are are, are um, you're giving people more responsibility, uh, giving them um, a little more flexibility. Uh, the mission is obviously a great inspirer, but it can't be the only thing. I think. What about when things are tough what, um, for yourself, and I suppose uh, even more broadly, what inspires you? Who inspires you? Are there any particular figures, individuals that have inspired you? My, my answer to that would be the, the, the people that inspire me the most are our, our team, to be honest with you. So, you know, seeing these guys who are just tremendously committed, the nurses who are there kind of on the front lines in the middle of the night delivering babies, um, doing it tirelessly and ceaselessly, that's, you know, that makes it easier to get up in the, in the morning when you know, uh, when you know what people are, the sort of lengths people are going to, um, to, to do their job and do it well. Um, our clients to, you know, the feedback was just, um, our clinical, clinical director was just sharing with me a, a note this morning from one of our clients who was just uh, giving great feedback about the service that she received, you know, um, one of the nurse aides sort of rubbing her back in the middle of the night you know, while she was in labor and, and uh, you know, getting callbacks or solicitous callbacks from our reception guys to make sure she was okay afterwards, you know, that kind of thing, hearing hearing their experiences and, and you know, how, how it differences, differs from their experience before is, is always, I think, an inspiration. Um, I think, you know, for those of us sort of trying to tackle really difficult causes, you have to be inspired to and check back in with the need itself. In other words, it's kind of a kick in the pants, but you know, people have been trying to solve maternal health and these global health problems for decades and without a tremendous amount of success. And, and I think it can be easy to become complacent. If, um, and so, you know, sort of making sure that, that we recognize how, how far there still is to go can be, can be an important motivator as well. The makeup of, of a social entrepreneur, the character of a social entrepreneur, do you have any sense of uh, what, what it takes, what kind of person will do, do well? Obviously, people from all kinds of realms of experience and, and, and expertise and so forth. Are there anything, any commonalities, any few qualities that you think are really important to, to be a social entrepreneur? That's a great question, uh, Fergal. I, I was just at a retreat last week with um, a group of social entrepreneurs 
Foundation, which is a phenomenal uh, organization that supports some very kind of promising social entrepreneurs. And um, you know, you see a real mix. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of the typical entrepreneurial characters uh, characteristics, kind of persistence and stubbornness, and, and and a willingness to sort of see things that don't ex- exist and and be bothered by problems that are out there, either in the market or in the sort of social sector. Um, but you know, the personalities vary a lot. You know, I think it's it's uh, you know when you look at sort of leadership of companies in general, I mean, you know, you get some very um, kind of inspired and inspirational people who are kind of visionary types, and there's some real engineers and, and, and project manager types who are just like, this is a problem I see, and I want to sort of have a background in accounting, and I want to figure this out, um, you know, kind of operations guys, as well as the sort of um, great talker or sort of visionary salespeople as well, and, and uh, I think it's great that there's that kind of mix. I don't think there should be a, an archetype, uh, honestly. Absolutely. Uh, the future of Jacaranda Health, the vision, what's your sense? Um, you, you, you mentioned you have 60 people today. What, what are the measures that you use to, to, to describe, I suppose, where you are today and what you've achieved and um, what is your vision? Yeah, that's, um, that's a good one and a tough one too because I think um, – for, for us, that's that's evolving. We're actually at a state where that's evolving a bit. Um, where our, our vision is to make you know to make an impact in maternal health, to reduce neonatal and maternal mortality. And um, you know, I think the challenge is drawing, sort of connecting the dots between a particular business model and, and service provision at a local level, and and kind of a big uh, and a big goal. And for us, our our kind of theory, our theory of change, I guess, is that. You know, we're we're building a network of hospitals, and our goal is to be um, one of the biggest providers of maternity care in the region. Um, so building you know building these hospitals and providing great direct service, um, starting in Nairobi and then moving into other uh, other cities in East Africa. Um, but at the same time, uh, we have there's a kind of an imperative to be capturing what we're doing well. So building these systems that I mentioned, capturing what we're doing. Uh, and sharing it, sort of disseminating it and influencing the sector. Because frankly, if we're just a chain of 10 or 20 hospitals, um, that's a drop in the bucket, you know, and I think that's true for a lot of people trying to deal with, you know, whether you're building schools or hospitals, um, your, 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 your ability to, to directly influence the population is just, you know, we would delivering 20 or 30,000 babies is, is a tiny percentage of the total market. So the only way that we're really going to budget the needle maternal health is through influence and there are a couple of different ways to get there and we're still in the process of kind of figuring it out as we as we are sort of demonstrating and proving our direct service model building the systems we're also looking at okay so how, how do we take this kind of better model and and get it um, replicated and adapted and scaled up in the in the public sector amongst the private sector and maternal health care in Kenya and beyond and there's a couple of and I think some of the smart and most successful uh, social enterprises out there have figured out how to do that either through advocacy and policy setting um, or through kind of strong partnerships, uh, you know, franchises and um, 
through other organizations that are able to operate at scale. Um, so there's, that's, that, I think, is one of the trickiest and most interesting questions, is how you take a kind of a direct service model and figure out how to kind of catalyze change in the broader ecosystem. Absolutely. So check back in, in with me once we figure it out. <laughs> Uh, yes, this idea of transferring insights and knowledge and expertise within uh, social and, and other organizations is, is clearly uh, very um, powerful. Um, you mentioned that there have been, it's a challenging area, maternity uh, health, and other people have had a go at it and so forth, or, or, or even doing it in different ways. Are there one or two insights that you've had that uh, I guess support your approach um, and that allow you to operate. I think you, you gave me some figure of uh, is it a fifth of the cost um, of, uh, of private hospitals? Um, what what is it that you you've learned? One one point that struck me is that I think sometimes in the social enterprise space there's an assumption that just reaching scale is enough, and I think that can be a little bit of a trap. In other words, that you have a successful business model. That's enough. That's enough. Um, you know, the delivering care better and cheaper is is going to somehow, you know, sort of result in other people other people following that um, that model. But if you, know, if you build a successful chain of schools or something like that, that's that's automatically going to translate into kind of impact in the sector. I think that's actually not true. And the, this issue of influence actually requires there's a there's a work stream around that. There's a kind of a there's strategies required to do that, and actually requires effort. And I think that's one of the challenging things for for-profit social enterprises is that you don't have. It's hard to um, build that into your build that into your margins that influence piece. And um, and that's one of the areas where I'd like to see the sector kind of focused a little more effort on is what are some of the most successful examples of how people take uh, successful models, whether it's delivering healthcare more cost-effectively or whether it's delivering a better model for education or sort of agricultural inputs and very very rich area because uh, there's so many proliferation of organizations now doing different things and I guess to identify what re what works really well there and what how what how transferable it is and how to transfer it could really have a you know multiply leverage the impact is there anything that you wanted to say about what you're doing that you think is inspiring. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have anything um, anything to add, Fergal. Besides, I mean, the fact that I think it's really exciting to see that there are so many people getting into this space. You know, that this idea of social entrepreneurship has become, you know, it's, it's sort of gone into the common currency of the language. And uh, and you see, you know, I see university students and and guys, and most excitingly to me, um, guys in. In Kenya, you know, sort of college kids and and you know business owners and stuff starting to think about um, uh, starting businesses themselves. I mean, I, I am I am and continue to be really keen to see more of these things originate. It's kind of where um, where the work is, and um, and I think I think uh, you know and I see a lot of promise in places like Nairobi where you get increasingly uh, people starting to launch their own businesses locally that uh, that are addressing some of these issues. Well, thank you very much, and I wish you the very best with uh, Jacaranda Health. But thank you for sharing your inspiring stories and experience with us today. Thanks, Fergal. It was great, uh, great speaking to you, and I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com 
and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.